Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. How do you handle a child in crisis if he or she is unruly and threatening to harm themselves? If this behavior happens in school, school districts in Connecticut and across the U.S. have called the police. But police aren't mental health professionals. Today, where we live, we talk about this issue with Connecticut's child advocate, Sarah Egan. Earlier this month, her office released a report focused on Waterbury Public Schools. It found that staff over a six-month period in the 2018-19 school year called the police nearly 200 times to respond to children under the age of 12. Coming up, we'll hear from a school district official about why this is happening and what's changed. We'll also hear from parents of Waterbury School students. Does your child attend Waterbury Public Schools? We want to hear from you. Join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page. You can also find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us now on Zoom is Sarah Egan, child advocate for the state of Connecticut. Sarah, welcome back to the show. Thanks very much for having me, Lucy. Also with us on Zoom is Jackie Davis. She's climate and attendance coordinator for Waterbury Public Schools. Jackie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start with you, uh, Sarah. Uh, it's a lengthy report, so I'm going to summarize here. Uh, according to your report, your office decided to investigate Waterbury Public Schools after hearing uh, concerns from the community about how the district delivered services and supports to vulnerable students, specifically how Waterbury called law enforcement to address the behavior of a very young student with disabilities. And you also looked at the rate of suspensions and arrests of young students. So you looked at uh, Waterbury Public schools within a six-month period in the 2018 school year, and you looked at calls to police for children from pre-K through grade eight. Can you share a few examples of situations when police were called, Sarah? Yes, thank you, Lucy. Um, well, I, I think a few of the things that we found, we, we looked through hundreds and hundreds of pages of police reports involving 911 calls about, as you said, very young students. Uh, it is important to note, Lucy, that um, of about those 200 calls, uh, more than 80 children were under the age of eight. Um, so that's over 40% of the calls to police were about very, very young children. Primarily, according to the police reports, children who are known or identified to have disabilities, um, some who were identified to have autism, um, and we did find that there were nine arrests of children age 11 and under. Most of the police reports, the majority of calls to police were coded by the police department as a mental health response call. So that I think tells us a lot of what we need to know about um, what, what's precipitating the calls to police. And now according to the incident reports, um, there's a range of behaviors that precipitated the call to police by school personnel, um, often a, a, a 
out of control behaviors that I think you or I or um, anyone on on this on this call would would consider out of control behaviors, running, awalling, thrashing. Um, for younger children, uh, we saw a lot of aggressiveness towards self. You know, a lot of I think we we're really shocked to see the number of children who were engaging in who were engaging in um, harmful behaviors to themselves, tying things around their neck, saying that they wanted to die. Um, you know, most of the children that we saw uh, engaging in those behaviors, and we I read personally about 40 incident reports that documented uh, young children engaging in self-harm. Most of those children were under the age of 10. Mm -hmm. So it was very young children. As children got a little bit older, we saw more aggression, more fighting. I think that's not uncommon in terms of how children internalize and externalize uh, trauma. Mm -hmm. So. Um, you know, so these these are really the range of behaviors. Some of the behaviors were very, very acute. And you can see in the documentation that teachers and other school personnel are overwhelmed and under equipped to respond to what the children need. You know, Sarah, uh, we'll link uh, to your report um, on our web post, uh, WNPR.org slash where we live. You know, as a mother, when I was reading uh, th this report and seeing that children as young as seven, eight and nine were tying things around their neck, telling uh, staff that they wanted to die. The first thing I'm thinking about is what's going on in this child's life where they're having this kind of crisis. And in that moment, aren't there Aren't there, isn't there staff at a school that's trained to deal with children that are having these type of crises versus calling the police? Well, I think, you know, we had the, I had the exact same reaction that you did. And I think it's really important to say that, Lucy, you know, we can start, when we think about solutions, like what are the answers? Yes, there are things we can see differently on the law enforcement side, though let's keep in mind that law enforcement comes when called, right? So it's not discretionary as to whether they respond. You know, there are things that can happen differently on the school side, and we should definitely talk about that. Um, and though in some ways it's beyond the scope of the investigation that we did, um, it is imperative to start thinking meaningfully about what is going on in these children's lives, that they are coming to school seven, eight, nine years old with that kind of despair, with that kind of traumatized behavior, right? And it's how far back do we peel the onion? And if in, until we as a, as a community, as a state, get much more serious and much more committed to meeting the, the needs of children and families in high need communities. You know, these children, their families, their educators will continue to pay the price. I mean, the, 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 the circumstances underlying these children's lives, you know, the trauma histories that they may have faced, the chronic deprivation, the housing insecurity, the food insecurity, we which are worse now than ever which I'm sure we'll hear from, from Jackie today in Waterbury Public Schools, an extremely high need community that is suffering. You know, we have to also come up with ways to do better, to feed, house, clothe, and support children and families. Because you're right, you know, these children are coming in with baggage full of despair. And, you know, it, and, and we have to be realistic about um, about what's needed to respond to that. But you're right, yes, if districts are, if a school is relying on calling law enforcement, just as if a, a school was relying on restraint and seclusion of children with disabilities, those are symptoms of a much larger problem of deficits in the continuum of care, in programming 
for those children, not just mental health supports, but special education supports. Mm -hmm. But yes, if we're looking outside to bring law enforcement in to deal with a highly distressed child, um, that is a sign that the district, that school is not prepared, trained, staffed, or resourced to prevent and manage behavioral health crises um, within the school community. So I wanted to hear uh, from uh, Jackie Davis again. Uh, she's a climate and attendance coordinator for Waterbury Public Schools. We did reach out to the superintendent, uh, but she had a, a meeting, a superintendent meeting that, that she could not uh, miss. And so we appreciate uh, Jackie making herself available to speak on behalf of the district. These numbers are really stunning. When we think about in a six-month period, nearly 200 times kids under the age of 12 having issues within uh, the Waterbury Public Schools and the police were called. Uh, Jackie, can you tell us why? And the and when we talk about support staff, is that an issue? Are there too few social workers and others to respond uh, in these situations? So yes, absolutely. Um, let me first say that, you know, to sort of piggyback on what Sarah was saying, you know, as we read the descriptions of these incidents and the very some of the behavior of our students, um, self harming and threatening to harm themselves and commit suicide. It is absolutely heartbreaking. Um, and so it, it definitely is at the center of our concern as an educational institution. And so a lot of times I think in those moments, adults feel that there is this pressure to um, offer immediate safety. And so a lot of times they will call 911 for EMT response. The protocol here in Waterbury is that anytime EMT is called for situations like that, police respond as well. And so one of the things that was highlighted in the report that causes sort of a breakdown in, you know, being able to access that level of care is that when police do show up, they do not show up with a trained clinician. You know, they, they show up to ensure the physical safety of everyone there. And so that leaves that piece of a trained person, a clinical crisis team that can help the child to self-regulate uh, in that moment. And so what we've done is we've had conversations with um, DCF, officials from DCF, from the Waterbury Police Department, and from Wellmore, who is the provider of our mobile crisis service here in Waterbury, to discuss how we ensure that in those crisis moments where a child is at imminent risk of harming themselves, um, how do we ensure that the right professional is there supporting that student? Um, one of the things that has come out of that conversation is we just made an amendment to our MOU with Wellmore to be able to expand how those mobile crisis services are offered. You know, we want to do everything that we can to remove any obstacles or barriers to getting assistance to that child um, in the moment. The chief and the Waterbury Police Department have been extremely collaborative with us and, and being able to ensure that mm. in those times when, when, when schools are calling for assistance, assistance with a crisis, that we are handle it, handling it in a way that does not re-traumatize that child. You know, we think about the fact that um, when a child is in a place where they're feeling some type of threat you know, sometimes seeing an officer might heighten that. And so we want to do everything that we can 
to break that cycle of trauma. We don't want to further traumatize that child. Jackie, um, when you mention Wellmore, so this is a behavioral uh, support uh, they, in the community that can come and help a school staff. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. So Wellmore is one of our community mental health um, providers. And so they've worked with us over the years to do a lot of work to shore up our response to any mental health issues that are happening in our buildings. Um, one of their main functions is facilitating the 211 services, which offers um, mobile crisis assistance to any families who are experiencing a situation where a student or a child is showing some behavior that's of concern. So in that six-month period of the calls to 911, are you saying that school staff were calling 911 because if they were to call 211, was there an issue with response time? I mean, tell me a little bit more there, Jackie. Um, so in the past, there has been concerns about response time. But again, Wellmore has been extremely um, supportive and coming to the table and working through some of those issues with us. And so that response time has been cut down. However, I think contractually, the response time that is given is, is within 25 minutes is contractually how it's written. Sometimes for a school, it can seem like an eternity and very scary to think of if that average response time is 25 minutes. Um, how do I ensure the safety of this child who is actively harming themselves or actively threatening to harm themselves or harming staff members. And so unfortunately, I think one of the responses to that has been to call 911 in those extreme situations. We do um, utilize 211 in a lot of circumstances, um, but I think there are very specific situations where there's sort of that urgency. And so our concern is, again, making sure that even if it is a 911 call, is there something that we can do in our community to ensure that a clinician is responding as well. And so that was part of um, our discussion about amending that MOU to see if there are some creative ways that we can get that mobile service out as quickly as possible. So it sounds, Jackie, it sounds like, you know, you're making strides uh, to address this issue. But from what you're telling us, in-house, uh, within your school staff, you don't have uh, enough support staff to help these teachers when an issue like this comes up. Yeah, so I think the, the level of need is absolutely of concern for us. A lot of the incidents that are documented in the report, you know, it does indicate that a school social worker was present and had been working with the student. And so I, I think just we have to be able to have the resources to meet that level of need. And so as a community, we absolutely do have some very viable resources. But I think, again, that um, sort of the intensity and the frequency of what we are seeing deserves some more attention. And so that's what that's a conversation that we have to have as a community. Mm -hmm. I wanted to bring Sarah Egan back into the conversation again, child advocate for the state of Connecticut. Uh, when you hear Jackie talk about uh, the measures uh, that they're working on uh, to address when a child is in need and not relying on the police, but to have uh, trained clinical or clinicians uh, to help when they're in this mental health crisis. You know, I'm looking at your report, and oftentimes it was a special education teacher calling 
911 to help with a child. And I'm just wondering if that points to the fact that there isn't enough resources to help children, special education uh, services to help both these teachers and these students. Yes, uh, thank you for picking up on that. I appreciate everything that Jackie talked about. And, and we met with the district and corresponded at length um, several times about this report. And the district has offered up a number of actions that it's already undertaken and planning to undertake. And Jackie talked about some of that. I know that Wellmore, who we also met with, is very invested in supporting students in the community and recognizes the immense level of need. But again, I want to come back to something I said before, which is, um, you know, to, to me, the the it's not just about crisis response, right? Which we have to look at, you know, how do we use mobile crisis more effectively? How do we embed maybe a portion of mobile crisis services within the school? It's about what is the continuum of mental health and therapeutic services available within the school community? And parallel to that, what are the programmatic supports that help identify children who are more complex learners and have higher needs, whether due to trauma, um, or neurodevelopmental disorders. That is something else that popped up in a lot of our reports. The most, the children who were most frequently the subject of calls to 911 were children identified in police reports as children with autism, mm -hmm. right? So talking about mobile crisis is, mobile crisis is not the solution. Mobile crisis is, um, and I know that the district recognizes that, right? But that's what we've talked about so far. Mobile crisis is part of a continuum of response, right? But we need to be thinking about the continuum of prevention. And in my view, the call to 911 is a symptom of programmatic deficiencies. And that means support for students and support for educators. So if a child with autism is the subject of four reports to police, my first thought is, what does that child's program look like? What supports and resources does the teacher have to to work capably with that child. How many other children with significant needs does that teacher have on their caseload? What is the special education teacher to staff ratio? I definitely think that one of the very important next steps, because we talk a lot about mental health and I think that's very important. And I agree with Jackie that trauma just radiates off the page when you look at these incidents involving these children. But I think equally as important is to look very closely and I would encourage the State Department of Ed to work closely with the district on examining the special education infrastructure uh, for students who are more complex learners within some of these high need programs that have higher rates of 911 calls and higher rates of exclusionary discipline and talk to teachers and families about what is missing programmatically right? It's a programmatic deficiency. And we have to look, I think looking at um, doing an, a, a, a comprehensive assessment of both the therapeutic continuum of care and the disability support services within the district will be extremely important. We're going to continue talking with Sarah Egan, Connecticut Child Advocate, and Jackie Davis, Climate and Attendance Coordinator for Waterbury Public Schools, right after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We also are going to hear from parents in the Waterbury School District. And there's also a question of whether there should be police officers or school resource officers in Waterbury Schools. You can join us as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We just heard from Connecticut's child advocate about her office's report focused on Waterbury Public Schools. Over a six-month period, school staff called police nearly 200 times to handle children behavior at elementary schools. Many of them were special education students, some as young as five years old. Sarah Egan is here on Zoom with us, as well as Jackie Davis, who is in charge of climate and attendance for Waterbury Public Schools. We wanted to hear from parents from Waterbury Public Schools, too. So joining us now on the phone is Dwayne Pittman, Jr. He is a parent and the vice president of Waterbury Strong Community Collective. Dwayne, welcome to our show. Hello, how are you? I'm doing all right. I understand that you have a child in the public school district, and we've been talking a little bit about this report from the Child Advocates Office about the number of times school staff have called police. Also, we didn't get a chance to mention this earlier, but within that six-month period of the children uh, that uh, staff called police on, 40 of these children were arrested. And I wanted to ask you what your, your reaction to all of this as a parent is. As a parent, I feel it's horrible. I feel it's awful. Um, You know, having a son, I have a son who's nine years old, and these kids talk. So a lot of these kids see what's going on nationally um, with police officers. So when when I talk to my son, he's afraid of officers. So I can just imagine the trauma of the 40 students who were arrested and they have to, and now we have to figure out a way for them to get over that trauma. And we don't know what's going on in homes. We don't know what's going on in their personal, their personal lives. So we don't know if we're adding on to that trauma, but I know when I talk to my son, um, he's afraid of the police and, and that's a problem because I, and I try to tell him, you know, the police are here to protect us. The police are here to make sure we're okay. And he's not seeing that. He's not hearing that when he goes to school either. So I really mm-hmm. feel it's a problem, especially them seeing an officer in the school. They're wondering why the officers are in school. How, how long have school resource officers been in uh, the Waterbury Public Schools, Dwayne? Um, I can't. I'm not sure, but I know when I graduated in 2007, even when I was in school in 2004, we had an officer at Kennedy High School. Sarah Egan, uh, in your report, you uh, look at, uh, you recommend that the role of police in schools should be reassessed. Uh, when we talked about these uh, situations where staff call police, it's not the SRO necessarily responding, but a police officer uh, from the department outside the school. But tell us more about uh, why you recommend that Waterbury should actually reevaluate why they even have police in schools. Right. Well, you know, I mean, obviously now, Lucy, we're having a national conversation about the role of police in schools. And again, I want to be very clear that our, our the report that we put together as a response to calls and concerns coming to our office um, is not a report um, indicting police. Right. As I said earlier, when, when somebody calls police, they come and they come with the resources that they have, the tools, the training that they've received. Um, it is not so. So you know, that just is what it is, right? And there's certainly things we can improve about police response or the role of police in responding as part of a well-coordinated mental health um, 
response team. But I think, yes, I mean, we, I mean, we have all ample evidence at this point that embedding police and law enforcement into the school community as part of essentially the continuum of response and progressive discipline um, is, is overwhelmingly not helpful in high need communities and particularly to children with disabilities and children with disabilities of color. This is an area that an issue that's been studied nationwide. It's been studied in Connecticut. Connecticut Voices for Children, for example, put out a report um, very uh, pretty recently talking about um, in Connecticut um, the the rate and the impact of having embedded police officers on children of color, and found that student where where um, schools had embedded police, um, students of color were uh, many times more likely to be arrested um, than in schools where there was not an embedded police officer, right? We also have tons of research nationwide that early involvement in the juvenile justice system just has a cascade of negative outcomes for children. And the earlier a child is involved in the justice system, the, the worse the trajectory for that child becomes in terms of uh, school suspension, school disengagement, and dropout. And we also have to think about resources, right? So there are communities that have six, seven, 10, 12 um, police it, 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 within the school communities. That's some of our medium to larger school systems, right? And, and you know, what are those resources taking the place of? When we hear Jackie Davis talking about the services that are so needed um, in, in the Waterbury school community, uh, we have to be very, um, jealous of how those resources are, are spent, right? And if the calls to 911 are a sign and symptom of a lack of an appropriate continuum of care, of a lack of adequate programming for certain children with disabilities, then we have to make sure we're investing the right resources. But, you know, when I was a kid, um, there were no police in schools. That's a phenomenon that's really developed over the last generation. And we have to look very critically at why we are doing that, what we hope to achieve, and the harms that that reliance has wrought in our high-need communities and communities of color. Uh, Dwayne Pittman, you said earlier that your child is fearful of the police. Before this report came out from the child advocate, how have parents responded to the schools, to the superintendent about why there are school resource officers in the schools? And where would you like to see those resources spent versus a pain to have the SROs there? Um, I've actually done some. Um, we've Waterbury Strong, my group, we've done some research. We actually did a live with our community referring to SROs and the Counselors Not Criminalization Act um, that was brought to up by Chris Murphy, Senator Chris Murphy. And, you know, we did a lot of research, and, you know, there's 29 public schools in Waterbury, and we looked at the budget, the Board of Education budget, and we don't have enough social workers or psychiatrists in the schools. So I feel like we have, if the, if the principals are calling the police and not actually using the SROs, I feel like the SROs can be taken out and more counselors, more psychiatrists, more social workers should be implemented in the schools. I mean, I'm pretty sure there's, we have records of the arrest for certain schools. Maybe we implement more counselors and social workers into those schools that we see where the arrests were made. Um, but I feel like if they're actually calling in to the police station 
and the SROs aren't being really aren't being utilized, then we should take that money and implement it in other resources to see how it goes. We see that, you know, we have three times the amount of arrests than Hartford, New Haven, and Bridgeport combined. So something has to change. And as far as, you know, the black community in Waterbury, we're taking a real focus on educating our youth, um, coming together, different uh, different black collaborative groups are coming together and we're trying to educate our our, our students, our children, on the police and what's really going on. You know, a lot of these kids, it's easy to go on a on a phone or tablet or uh, um, a computer and see these things that are going on nationally. And it trickles down locally where they're asking questions. So as far as my group, we're trying to really advocate and lead and educate our youth on everything that's going on in our local community because everyone sees what's going on nationally. But we have to pay attention to what's going on at home. You're hearing Dwayne Pittman Jr. He's a parent of a child in the Waterbury Public Schools, also vice president of Waterbury Strong Community Collective. I wanted to ask Jackie Davis, who's still with us on Zoom, you're you're in charge of climate and attendance uh, for Waterbury Public Schools. When you hear from parents like Dwayne and others that question the resources spent on SROs versus getting more social workers into your elementary schools, you know how is the, the school district responding to that? So we absolutely are sensitive to what's happening nationally um, in terms of the conversation about police and use of force. I think for Waterbury, our chief has been extremely sensitive and responsive to that and has tried to ensure that within his department, he's looking to build positive relationships among not just our SROs, but also, you know, some of our patrol men and women and making sure that that connection is there. Um, so just to clarify, we do not have, at the time of the report, we did not have SROs in the elementary school. Since then, there's been a roving SRO sort of introduced to, again, build those relationships. The SROs that are in our secondary buildings, you know, are extremely involved in their community. One of them um, coaches our sports teams in our high schools. Um, another one, um, works with the drum corps group here in Waterbury that's doing phenomenal things. And so that that definitely has been a focus for our community. I absolutely applaud Dwayne and all the other groups in Waterbury who are teaching our young people how to make positive change, how to, you know, identify parts of our system that are broken and how to advocate for themselves. We we absolutely support that. And so one of the other things that Dr. Ruffin is doing in collaboration with Chief Spagnola, they are doing a roundtable. And so what this roundtable will do is it brings together some of our community stakeholders to have these conversations about what's going on in our community. What are the assets? You know, what are those groups out there that can support, um, you know, positive development for youth? Where are some gaps in service services? You know, where are those areas where we need to sort of shore up the offerings that we have for our students? And so this advisory group will be ongoing. You know, it will look to establish, you know, very concrete goals that we can measure. It's not going to be a one-time deal, but something that we work on consistently to improve outcomes here in our city. 
I wanted to ask you, Jackie, you said that uh, the SROs uh, kind of rove around to help build relationships. What do you mean by that? How are they building relationships with students when we hear from parents like Dwayne uh, who say that, you know, his child is fearful of police? I'm just wondering if you could talk, talk more about how they build relationships. Sure. So at the secondary level, um, each each comprehensive middle and high school is assigned an officer that they can get to know. The officer is there with them during the school day. You know, they see them in the hallway. The officer gets to know what gets to know what's going on in that child's life so they can check in with them. Um, We have students that go to officers for advice. The roving officer is at the elementary level. And so um, the time frame of the report, there was no officer that had an established relationship with our elementary buildings. And so the roving officer is someone who visits our buildings, our elementary buildings, just to check in on students. You know, they get to know her and know her face. They were very intentional. The police department was very intentional about choosing someone, you know, who had the right personality fit to be able to engage with young people. And so that if a crisis arises or police have to get involved, they have that specific officer that they can have respond. And, you know, I think it it definitely offers a different type of response when that person has a pre-existing relationship. Um, And just to speak to in terms of funding and what's happening with with resources, um, we do have in our budget this year uh, a line that would allow us to increase the number of social workers And so, you know, we're looking at it, not just in terms of increasing the number of staff, but sort of a broader plan. You know, what is our framework for addressing mental health issues in our building? Sarah talked about having a continuum of care. And so we're not just looking at the crisis piece, but we're looking at those multi-tiered systems of support. So on a universal level, you know, what are we doing to support our students' social, emotional well-being? And so we have um, put into place different programs. We use restorative practices in our elementary schools, which is the main focus is on relationship building. The main component of restorative practices is about building community. And so when something does happen and there's a breach in that relationship, restorative practices looks at not punishing the behavior, but looking to understand it and repair it. And so... Um, That's one of the programs that we offer on that universal level. But we do also have um, supports for more targeted incidences where we understand that students need a little bit more support. And so as we're talking about service provision in in our buildings, we don't want to just look at increasing staff numbers, but we want to make sure that we have a whole um, array of services that we would be able to offer our students and families. I want to take a quick call. Again, you can join our conversation as we talk about how schools should respond to children, uh, whether they're in crisis or even if there's a disciplinary issue. Is it a a right uh, tool to be calling the police to respond uh, to these kinds of situations? You can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Alla is calling in, uh, and, and um, Alla is a member of the Radical Advocates for Cross-Cultural Education. Uh, Alla, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. 
So I, I wanted to have you respond as a community member, um, what kinds of changes you want to see as your and your group uh, see in the Waterbury Public Schools when we talk about helping uh, children. Well, um, a lot of the things I heard in the call today are um, are band-aids. They're, they can be entryways to really begin the process of transformation, not just restorative. Um, if we think about the history of police in totality, it's never been the police, the, the system of policing has never been for the betterment of folks in the community or um, to help the community. It's always been to protect property and um, to protect those folks who have power and have the um, ability to unfortunately create oppressive um, living and working and educational systems for the folks who they are dependent on for economic reasons. So it's hard to wrap. Um, we're really wanting to be holistic with our children and really wanting to create a sustainable change in our community. We have to remember that children are children far less longer than they are adults. And what the just the visual of seeing a police officer in the school before any point of contact, albeit negative or positive, is traumatic for black and brown students who are socialized into seeing their murders, the abuse of them at the hands of police officers. So before we even get to have any um, event that would um, need a student to um, have an intervention of some sort, we already have the first point of trauma for our students entering into school. And then um, we have this, this narrative that the police are creating relationships with students in the schools. And if you poll the, the students who actually have contact with the police officers, when we're speaking for black and brown students, their, those experiences are more negative than positive. Mm -hmm. these, are, these experiences are based in a power dynamic that black and brown folks have to live under their whole entire life of fear. And if they do not um, cooperate with the system and sometimes going against their, the need for, for emotional stability, emotional help and support because of fear. And so if I have a power over you and I'm saying, come over here and joke with me and laugh with me, I, you'll come over and joke and laugh with me and tell, you, tell, tell me your name, not because you want to, not because you think that I'm a beacon um, that can help, a beacon of help for a resource that I'm, I may need, but because I feel like if I don't do that, then now this mm -hmm. police officer is going to not like me. And we know for children, the the we oftentimes they don't always have the language, and so they'll say the things that are fearful to them, or or experiences from adults. They'll say, well, "My stomach hurts," or "They don't like me," or "I don't want to go there." And so we have points of 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 trauma that a lot of black and brown folks and young folks are experiencing outside of school mm -hmm. just due to the socialization of us into policing. 
And, and Allah, Allah that's, those are good points that you raise. I just wanted to um, ask uh, Dwayne Pittman before we head to break uh, to also respond because, you know, not just talking about uh, further supports for uh, children, you know, we have to acknowledge that when we talk about systemic racism, when we see exclusionary discipline used and police intervention for discipline issues, it is worse for children of color in the state. Uh, Dwayne, you made the point earlier that Waterbury stands out when compared to other cities in our state where you're seeing the police called and these children are then arrested. Yes. Um, like I said, I feel like, like to go what Allah was saying, you know, when I, even me as a, as a, as a black man, when I see the police, I'm, I'm on my toes, be completely honest. And I work with officers or, you know, with community leaders and things like that. And so for my son to feel, to go through systemic racism in Waterbury, and then to see, like, you know, I had to have a real conversation with my son because one time he came to me and he pretended like he was shooting a Nerf gun. And he said, that's a white cop. And he said, and then he did a black cop. And it was a totally different situation where he, he was talking to me. And I'm just like, I have to explain to him. So, and my son, you know, he comes from a family who support him and everything he does, but if he has that mindset, I could just imagine the other kids that have that mindset and who actually seen, you know, trauma with police in Waterbury. So I really feel like we need to look at that because if they're already afraid, no matter how many different, if there's a cop in the school and he's inter interacting with a kid, he's not interacting with all of them, mm -hmm. you know? And so when we look at the police, every time we look at the police, we're like, what are they doing here? Why are they here? We think something's wrong. And I don't think going to the school and having that mindset is a good thing for a child. Well, Dwayne Pittman Jr., I want to thank you for joining us today. Again, a parent in the Waterbury Public Schools and vice president of Waterbury Strong Community Collective. Dwayne, thanks for your time today. Thank you. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We want to find out what the role of the State Department of Education is in all of this. And so after the break, we'll hear from the State Department of Ed. And you can join us as well. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we're talking about uh, how a report showed that Waterbury Public Schools uh, was calling the police off and uh, did address uh, behavior issues within uh, its schools. But to tell you the truth, this is not something exclusive to Waterbury. This is an issue uh, that has come up across our state. It's something that schools across our nation um, are also uh, dealing with and uh, whether or not it's a proper tool to call all police to respond to discipline issues in schools. I want to bring into the conversation now Irene Parisi. She's Chief Academic Officer at the Connecticut State Department of Education. Irene, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you, Lucy. I guess I wanted to find out 
what role or responsibility does the State Department of Ed have to make sure that when districts like Waterbury, uh, they need extra support? You're seeing data showing that they're calling police too often to deal with these issues within elementary school, kids as young as, as five, year old, five years old at times. What role does the State Department of Ed have to respond and how are you responding? Sure. Um, I think it's important that um, I wanted to make sure that we know that we've been working in partnership with Sarah Egan. We appreciate her bringing us in uh, back in July um, to share with us her findings. So we appreciate being able to come to the table as a State Department of Education. And certainly we've been working closely with Waterbury for a number of years. And most recently with Dr. Ruffin under her leadership, things are changing. And we know, and it's been said here, that the chief of police is new. So I think what, what I've been hearing in the background is that there's this stronger collaborative to promote change and that positive change that, that we've been hearing along in, in the show. Um, so our role in all of that is to be that system of support to also provide whether that support is measures of accountability uh, certainly um, thinking through some of the strategies and being supportive of the strategies that Dr. Ruffin and her team are bringing forward. Um, our role is also in providing additional supports um, through the whole agency. So it's not just the academic mm -hmm. office, it's our, our student support services, it's our turnaround office, and that includes funding. So what is the funding that we can provide to the district and work with them in the programmatic change. I think I heard too, like how do we create some programmatic change so that we can sustain that, that positive um, support system or web of care that they are trying to create. And Irene, we don't have uh, too much time, unfortunately, mm -hmm. but something sure. that really stood out to me in this report is the suicidality the fact that there were children talking about harming themselves. And so I'm wondering how the State Department of Ed is going to respond to that and how it, I'm just wondering why this, you talk about collaboration, but this is not a new issue. It's been something that's been raised by Connecticut Voices for Children for years, a child advocate and others. And so specifically, how do you address that issue as well? Well, we can't do it alone. Again, um, Dr. Ruffin is at the table and we're talking through this um, in regular conversations. Um, it is important that she has time to collect all of the information that she has using the report as additional evidence and getting to the root cause. Um, that is something that we, we need to determine. What is the root cause? And then we can actually target it. This is not, we are not patient with these, these challenges. Certainly Dr. Ruffin is not, this is an urgent matter. Mm -hmm. But I think the more that we're this present and ongoing are these conversations and coming to the table to determine the strategies. Um, mm -hmm. But we need to lead with that, that data and that evidence to get to the root cause. And that's what she's doing. Mm -hmm. And we know that collaboration is great, but will there be consequences for school districts that uh, that uh, don't make changes? Uh, I'm just wondering in terms of looking at a path uh, to make sure that change is happening, Irene. How, from the State Department of Ed standpoint, how do you follow that? Well, the one thing I can share, um, and just, and I've been with the agency since April of this year, 
We do have monitoring meetings that happen annually. And through these monitoring meetings, this is a measure of accountability where the team is brought together with um, a cross-divisional team across the entire agency. And we have targeted questions. We collect data. We ask that the district provide specific data with us. And that's where we have these open conversations about this, this data point is troubling. What are we doing about it? And then we um, discuss how the funding might be used to provide either programs or even, um, and not just a program, but maybe the people, the personnel that might be required and needed at the, the district mm -hmm. level. So that's one measure of accountability where they're, they're asked to attend these annual monitoring meetings. And there are other uh, folks across the agency that do meet regularly with them as, as a measure mm -hmm. of accountability. Uh, Sarah, we just have a couple of minutes. Sarah Egan's still with us. Uh, how do you uh, want to see the State Department of Ed continue to help districts like Waterbury address this issue? Yes, thank you. Um, you know, I appreciate the, the, the work and the collaboration that the State Department of Ed brings to these challenges, but I do fear that it's not enough, right? Um, and, you know, the solutions are multifold here, but I do, and, and they aren't just about Waterbury. I do think we need a public corrective action plan for Waterbury that has meaningful input from family and from teachers that is accountable, that is published, that is reviewed regularly in public meetings with the State Board of Education. Um, I would also recommend for Waterbury a needs assessment, probably an independent needs assessment that would review the education records and interview teachers and uh, and where, where um where we can students and families to to identify independently what the programmatic needs are in schools that are reliant on school suspensions and 911 to serve children with disabilities um, and then that needs assessment should be published and should and the corrective action plan should be amended and modified based on that needs assessment um, and we'll have to leave it. Unfortunately, Sarah, we'll have to leave yeah. it there. This is an okay. important topic. It's hard to talk about it in 49 minutes, but we appreciate Sarah Egan, child advocate for the state of Connecticut, joining us today on Where We Live. Also, Irene Parisi joined us from the State Department of Ed. She's chief academic officer and Jackie Davis from the Waterbury Public Schools. Uh, we hope to have you back uh, to talk about this further. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks for listening.